This is Aspire, Arc Street Public Radio, a content-driven platform broadcasting interviews from our Innovate, Innovate Media, Innovate CSR, and Innovate Under 30 podcast series. Aspire gives public voice to socially conscious and forward-thinking leaders within the nonprofit and for-profit sectors, academia, journalism, and social entrepreneurship. Today, our guest is Betty McConey, the founder and CEO of the Girl Child Network Worldwide, an organization at the center of a global commitment to gathering, codifying, training, and promoting the experiences and expertise of African girl advocates and marginalized girls. The network supports and promotes girls' rights, empowerment, and education. The network reaches out to and advances the circumstances of African girls who are economically deprived, at risk of abuse, subject to harmful cultural practices, or living in areas of instability. Betty has earned two Bachelor of Arts Honors degrees from the University of Zimbabwe. Her leadership has been recognized around the world. Her many honors include the World Children's Prize, Amnesty International's Janetta Sagan Award for Women and Children's Rights, the Women's Empowerment Award, recognition as a CNN hero, and her status as an Ashoka Fellow, something we share. A renowned poet, speaker, and activist, Betty is the author of A Woman, Once a Girl, Breaking Silence, and also her new autobiography, Never Again, both available through Amazon.com. Betty, thank you so much for joining our conversation today. Oh, thank you. It's my pleasure. I'd like to begin by asking you to tell us what first inspired you to take up the cause of empowering girls and protecting them from abuse. Uh, what uh, inspired me is that when I was a little girl, I grew up in a very poor, high-density suburb, and uh, I saw the suffering of uh, women in my neighborhood, including my mother, who later on died in domestic violence. So as a little girl, I had questions as to why women died, as to why women get beaten up in the homes where they are supposed to be protected. So I became what I normally want to call a rebel of patriarchy. I didn't want what men were doing to women. I thought it was unfair, insensitive, and unjust. So I grew up with the determination that one day I would do something when I grow up. So finally, when I got the chance to finish my university, I went back into my neighborhood to be a teacher. And whilst I was there, I was inspired by young girls in the same neighborhood where I grew up who came forward to talk about their stories. But this time I was in a position to listen to them. When I listened to them, I felt they needed a platform. And I also needed a platform to share with them how I had empowered myself. So I can say my neighborhood, the poor women in my neighborhood, young girls are the ones who inspired me. I think that few of our listeners probably have a detailed sense of the nature of the problem that you're trying to address because the problem is so 
is so different in your country than it, than it is in the West. And I wonder if you could give our listeners just some sense of what goes on uh, in Zimbabwe and in Africa, particularly in the area of the rape of children and, and also violence against women. Could you give our listeners some uh, sense of how that exists in the, in the communities that you're working in? Uh, first and foremost, I want to say, when I come to discuss the subject of rape, mm. I'm not just discussing it as a professional somewhere right. or, uh, or someone who is alien to the subject. I'm discussing it as a survivor of rape at age six myself. And um, to give first rape, I presented myself to say, why are we quiet? Because it was silenced about. But just to give an overview of what it is like, in many situations that I have been through, especially when I grew up, you could just see a girl of your age, 12 years old, being taken by a 70-year-old man for a wife. And then they would say, last night I had a dream where God gave me this girl to be my wife. The next time the girl disappears from the classroom, she is sexually enslaved in a bedroom. You don't get to see her. You don't get to know her. So there have been many disappearances of young girls. I think in America, people might think of uh, someone being kidnapped and they disappear. And in Zimbabwe, we think about someone, you know, kidnapping the girl for sex abducting them and taking them to be a sex slave right in our eyes and we actually everybody actually knows that's how bad it is but i can give you statistics just to uh, paint the gloomy picture around rape of children since uh 1998 when i started the project i had at least 10 girls who came to my offices to report rape on a daily basis and the figures actually rose from one, one rape case per day to uh, 15 cases per day by the end of two, 2008. So I can say roughly by the 10 years, one decade, I worked, those girls were able actually to open up and seek services from my offices where over 70,000 girls with the youngest girl raped because of the virgin meat where men think that virgins cure AIDS. She was only a day old baby. Some people would think, oh, this sounds exaggerated, this sounds a lie. But I think with my hands, I couldn't also believe when the case was presented to me personally to just look at a baby we had just been born a man was trying actually to get his aging blood in order to be cured uh, of HIV and AIDS. That's how desperate the cure of HIV and AIDS came to. There are so many myths surrounding uh, the sexual abuse of girls. Some people think that when you kill somebody, the only way you can replace the deceased is to take a girl, give a man to uh, give her to the deceased family, they force her to have a baby, and once the girl replaces the baby with a baby boy, that's accepted as crime resolved. But if a girl gives birth to a girl, she continues to bear children until she gets a boy. A girl is never accepted by patriarchy. We are second-class citizens. 
they are not considered for school. All preferences is given to girl to boys. Uh, and once a girl is born in a family, they are given delegatory names like Dambuzo, you are trouble. They are given uh, many names that actually show a script put on them a sexual object. So they've been married off. They have uh, been um, taken into performing rituals in order to appease avenging spirits. They've been taken for female genital mutilation. You can imagine your body being uh, mutilated to fit whatever sexual desires older men have. So it has been uh, like every corner of where you are supposed to be. There is either a myth, a harmful practical, a harmful uh, practice, and also the fact that a girl must be in someone's sexual slavery. Thank you so much for sharing that. I think it is something that is would be shocking for most people to really wrap their mind around what happens, the epidemic of violence and, and conduct that would, in, in the West, land you in jail, that it is very widespread. And, and uh, your courageous stand against this injustice is something uh, that the world needs to know about. I I wanted to focus on the solution. We've talked a little bit about the problem, and I also want to let our listeners know that there are some excellent resources for people who want to understand really the nature of the problem that you're trying to combat. One, of course, would be the two books that you have written on the subject, which are available at Amazon.com. One is this, your book, A Woman, Once a Girl, Breaking Silence, and then also your autobiography. And there's also a documentary, am I correct, Tapestries of Hope, um, which I have seen, and that also is, I think, an excellent description of, of the the social problem that your work is is directed towards. Are there any other resources that people who really want to understand the scope of this problem that they should turn to? Oh, yes, they are resources. Uh, University of uh, Arizona um, and University of Utah actually packaged this uh, girl-child empowerment model what the girl child empowerment model does is it gives the three uh, most important strategies that can help transform a perceived victim into a leader. Because when you come to see our situation and uh, all the stories that you have heard, you would think it's hopeless. But I also come to present that it's not hopeless because Betty Maconi came out of the situation and even managed to build a national organization where I facilitated, meaning I put girls at the forefront of their own development and let them lead, instill coming up with a whole new set, a whole new mindset where we begin to teach communities that girls and boys are equal, such simple things where we begin to find positive cultural practices that would actually uh, be used by communities uh, to to, to support empowerment and development of girls. But we also think of the provision, we are talking about uh, people surviving on less than a dollar, a dollar a day. So we think about strategies on how to bring basics to the table. For instance, most probably people may take for granted the fact that 
something like a sanitary pad that is provided for menstruation monthly in any shop in America can be a nightmare to a girl in a rural area who misses three months of a school just trying to get that to actually um, proceed on with a schooling. So we try to provide the means if they can do them themselves, if they can use their hands. So we have come up with um, a research project uh, that we called the Lift Experiences of uh, of um, Girl Child Network Beneficiaries. All the girls who came out of our project, we sampled them and we actually did a qualitative research on how the empowerment changed them. So it's a resource that you can get from University of Utah that can help a lot of people. But also in the United States of America, some girls came forward, even though they are in a Western country. They identified quite a number of challenges they also face that are similar to girls uh, in Zimbabwe, to girls in Africa. So they've also started replicating the model. So you will find that in places like New York, Mount Wallick Women's College, uh, and also in, uh, in Los Angeles, there are schools and colleges who have also started taking the model to use it to transform their lives. So we actually ask a lot of young women, young girls, to also affiliate themselves to those colleges because something you learn practically lives in you more than something that uh, a person just talks to you about or interaction with a book. But we are all over media. We have taken our social media uh, to be our medium of communication in order for us to give daily dosages of information to young girls, we do not mind where you come from, whether from the north, from the south, from the east or the west. We are just a movement that is taking advantage of technology, that is taking advantage of our grassroots, uh, you know, girls empowerment clubs to disseminate information. So there are so many ways to get information from us, but also we feel girls can generate information. So there are also girls who have produced the assignments during their class. They go research about us. They go make recommendations. They also go do projects. So all those girls, we need also to look at their information and see how our girl child empowerment models continues to develop in different environments. Betty, it seems that one of the real central organizing units of your work are these girl clubs, that that the girl clubs have existed in Zimbabwe and then spread to other countries in Africa and then actually spread around the world. And uh, really, it's extraordinary the scope of uh, reach and the impact that these clubs have had on empowering girls and uh, protecting them from abuse. And I wonder if you could share with our listeners how do the girl clubs work and what kind of services do the girls receive when they come to your girl clubs? Um, the girls clubs are platforms that girls start on their own, young girls, whatever age. If she just feels that I'm a leader and today I just want to meet with other girls, they do so. But they've got a manual that guides them I see. on the principles, the vision they are supposed to follow on the programs they are supposed to do. 
For instance, we actually want girls to develop a new practice to meet, ask powerful questions, because this is what girls don't do, especially in situations, for instance, where a sugar daddy would come to them with money and they lure them into sex and make them pregnant. So we try to take them into deeper analysis of things, of issues, of life. We also want girls to organize and find around them who are the most inspirational women that they can invite and meet physically to talk to. We also want girls to start writing about their life journeys. Life is a journey. We come back to them to say, look, well, where our journey started and where it is. But you still have a big opportunity to journal your journey. Put it down. What are the obstacles? Are you analyzing them? Are you finding friendly people to talk to? Where is family? We always try to build a social support system around girls in a club. And also we want girls to know about service provisions. Much as you see everywhere, it's written that people provide counseling, people provide justice, people provide medical facilities. But when a girl is confronted with a problem, rarely does she tend to those services. So we also want them to have a deeper appreciation that prevention is better than cure. We don't want our, 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 the reason for forming clubs is we don't want any girl getting herself into a tragic situation where we are not able to rescue her. We don't want her to get into a traumatic system. So we want her to use every available opportunity. But also the most critical thing that we do with girls' clubs, we try to make sure that girls are registered at a central place where we can easily monitor their lives, where we can easily check on their safety. There is nobody doing that in the world. When you see a girl at a pub being raped, nobody would actually stand up to say, stop what you are doing. But our girls' clubs are able to uh, have girls who are peer-to-peer support. Uh, Where is Maria? Is she safe? Are we going to safe places? Are we not going to be harmed? That's the role of a club in a community. But also a club makes strong a family unit. A family unit remains the most basic uh, unit in any country. If that does not understand what a girl goes through, situations can deteriorate for a number of girls. So we try as much as possible to educate families on the need for them to also support protection of girls. But our number one priority for clubs is to emphasize education. There is no time a girl will be will remain a girl. She is going into womanhood. Education remains the number one um, passage out of poverty, out of ignorance. So we stress that every girl must be in school, every girl must be in classroom and not bedroom. You also have a very critical part of the program, if I understand this correctly, that is called the at-risk support program, and this somehow works with girl empowerment villages. Could you tell us about that, how you provide this crisis support and the, and the role of that and then the girl empowerment village? What, what is that? 
Uh, that's a very good question. Uh, we are cognizant of the fact that there are times when girls get to their girls' club and some of the girls come out to disclose abuse. There must be always a plan B to rescue uh, that girl from a situation. So she is referred to the girls at risky support unit where she goes to meet a trained counselor, where she goes to meet a good community leader to share their challenge, even to disclose on the abuse so that they get assistance with the police, court, a hospital as well as school. Those are the four major stakeholders we work with when we are with a girl at risk. But also a girl at risk is that door that you knock any hour when all other doors are closed. Girls at risk is a door that remains open. That's why you will see even with technology, modern technology like all social media, Facebook, we know girls are always saying, what's up? Uh, whatever, Viber, Tango, every free service, we have taken advantage of it for girls to text a message. Once they text a message, there is always somewhere, somewhere in the world where someone will say, can I hear the rest of the story and I refer you to the right people. So we have built our own global links of where a girl can go. A girl who knocks on our door, it can be a physical door at our many girls' empowerment villages in Zimbabwe, uh, Sierra Leone, Uganda, and many other places. But it can be just on a Facebook page. It can be just in the inbox. It can be via email. It can be anywhere a girl feels safe and also protected. So we can say to a large extent we have actually opened ways for young girls at risk to actually present their cases to people who can urgently help them. This Innovate series features dialogue with some of the most influential advocates for changing our world. From the CEOs and founders of major nonprofits to the directors of cultural and academic institutions, Innovate demonstrates the vital role of empathy as an agent for that change. Innovate and Aspire are produced in partnership with Ashoka, Innovators for the Public, the Kellogg Fellows Leadership Alliance, and the Philadelphia Social Innovations Journal, and presented by Arch Street Press and the Public Radio Exchange. Now return to our Innovate interview with David Castro and Becky McConey, founder and CEO of the Girl Child Network Worldwide. So it's right that the at-risk support program is really a, a form of crisis intervention where you can rescue a girl that is at risk of some kind of abuse. And then am I right that the empowerment village is that safe space that the girl can go to actually live if they need that in order to be uh, rescued? Is that true? You are 
Yes, you are right. You are quite right that um, girls at risk is opportunity is your first point of call to say the story. Yeah. And uh, it's part of the crisis intervention. And then finally, we have to know where you have to go. If your case is very serious, right. we stay with you for a while in a girls' empowerment village, which is a safe space. The club itself then is is a more generalized program which serves as an empowerment vehicle to keep girls from becoming at risk in the first place and then to strengthen them and uh, improve their education and really build a women's empowerment movement in the culture. Do I have that right? Yes, you have that right. This is where the leadership uh, development of girls takes place, the mentoring, the identification of your own areas of strength. But also, it's a very safe place for a girl to start listening to other girls and open up. Now, one of the things that I see you're doing is really working to change the culture at the deepest level and in terms of how women view themselves and how they see uh, their role in society. And I wonder if you could talk about that and particularly a program that I see which is called WARM, Women as Role Models Program. Uh, Can you tell us about WARM and your vision there of how to transform the way women in these cultures see themselves? Uh, I developed this program in 2004 when I had many, many thousands of girls actually knocking on the door to say, I don't have school fees. And sometimes it was uh, $10 that could bring such misery and pain to a girl. So what I did was to say, well, amongst us, there are women honestly in our communities that can spare $10 and make the pain less. And also invest in a girl because uh, once we put them back in school, we are putting them back to life. So we started women as role models, looking at women at whatever level they can provide assistance. It be it even an exercise book, be it shoes, be it sanitary pads, be it school fees. So they would role model girls also in trying to keep in physical contact with them, encouraging them to go to school. When I grew up, there was nobody who encouraged me to go back to school. What actually happened, and I stated it in my autobiography, the only woman I tended to when I grew up was a prostitute who rented a makeshift house at my grandmother's place. She never, of course, told me to go to the beer hall and be a prostitute. But she kept on saying, Betty, go. I couldn't do it, but you go. That gave me determination to say, amongst women, even if they are not educated, but they are role models who can come and hold your hand and walk with you. So on 13 April, on our Never Again launch of my autobiography, 160 women in the United Kingdom are going to take one girl each. Each time they pay for their dinner, they are automatically paying for their women's role models, school fees for a scholarship. Betty, one of the extraordinary parts of your story is how this work has scaled and spread around the world. And I wonder if you could tell us a little bit about that. I know you started uh, in Zimbabwe with a small program, but then it has just grown and grown and grown. Can you give us a sense of, of, of your reach today and, and how many countries you're in and, uh, and, and just what is happening right at this moment? 
Uh, as you know, I started my project in Zimbabwe, worked there for 10 years, and then I handed it over to my successors, and uh, they are running the project in Zimbabwe as it used to be, and also they have done their own modification to suit their own time. But uh, what is so interesting, my project quickly spilled over to a country known as Swaziland, and uh, as you know, Swaziland is one of uh, uh, those countries in Africa where there are deep harmful cultural practices like the reed dance, where the king uh, takes uh, a, a wife every year and young girls are out parading naked. So we really, really are thinking that if they have got a mindset to go back into school in Swaziland, they could do it. So I started imparting the, the project, the model in Swaziland in uh, 2006. So the project has done very well in Swaziland. I'm so happy that something I started in a classroom could be taken by another country and it thrives like that. And then uh, another country I was taken to be now an advisor and a consultant for Tanzania, uh, Ethiopia, and uh, and also uh, Tanzania and Ethiopia especially. I went to those countries, met with various groups working with children. I trained them for days. So in Tanzania and Ethiopia, there are also girls' clubs, but those ones, we call them our tier four of groups, where the, uh, our tier three of groups, where I give the skills, they call me to help them, but they don't necessarily have to be affiliated to us. And then I, I, I do have what I call tier two. With tier two, those are organizations that want to be affiliated with us. They are following our footsteps, how we did it in Zimbabwe. And now one of my first girls who graduated from my from my girls' clubs who went to Mount, Mount Holic Women's College in USA, graduated, and she got married in Uganda. So now she has got Girl Child Network in Uganda with about 500 girls' clubs there. In Sierra Leone, there is a woman I trained in the UK, and she went and started a fully-fledged organization, which is being run by young college women as a girl-child network Sierra Leone. And then uh, Ghana. Ghana has done exceptionally well. I trained just one young woman, and she has got a fully-fledged network of over 300 girls' clubs in the country. I went to Ghana, and I couldn't believe that just meeting one young woman would make, would make the concept spread so fast. Here in the United Kingdom, I have Our Ladies Convent. They are primarily mostly African girls there. I go there. It's a girls' school with over a 1,000 young girls. So they've also taken up uh, the girl-child empowerment model, and they are the ones that are now planning for the African Girls Leadership and Education Awards Ceremony, where we are going now to award all the young girls who have replicated the model and show the world what the girls can do. So my estimate is that to my membership, to our membership as a network in the world, we have got over 100,000 girls, including those in the United States of America. Incredible. It's such an incredible accomplishment. Can you tell us what is your vision for the future of the Girl Child Network at this moment and 
what are the projects that you're focused on most in right at this moment? Uh, right at this moment, we are focused on strengthening our chapters that are formed in various countries. Uh, that's the priority training, capacity building, ensuring that they've got funding so that we have done successfully for the past two years. Of course, we are still getting uh, small funds, but we are hoping gradually to keep going up. And then we have set up Girls Empowerment and Education Fund. We believe when girls need resources, financial especially, they don't have to go through all the bureaucratic systems. They must get you know, funding for um, emergency services quickly available because sometimes their lives are at risk. So we have set up the first ever Girls Empowerment and Education Fund that we are also launching on the 13th of April. And then our other priority is to ensure that we keep our advocacy speaking out. Every girl everywhere, every man and woman, every boy must join in stopping the harmful cultural practices. Female genital mutilation, forced marriage, there is virgin myths, and also taking girls out of school. So we have got four main issues that we are advocating for in the world. So we have decided to keep our priorities at these are four major things. Terrific. And if I'm hearing this right, part of your vision is to raise funds that can be used by these girl clubs around the world, especially in the most uh, impoverished communities, to support the empowerment of girls in those communities. Am I, am I hearing that right? Yes. What I've done is I've come up to say, look, we can do it. We can set up ourselves even with little or no resources, we have proved that we are a movement that grows. Uh, now we are coming to those who give to say, um, here we are, we, 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 we have the girls, they are leading. But my vision, my, the thing that I want to see is, I want to see many Betimakonis in the world. I want to see many young women taking over. You know, as we age away, our energy may not be at the same level as an 18-year-old girl. I don't underestimate what an 18-year-old girl can do because I did quite a lot at age six. At age six, I could be on the street selling. I could look after my brothers. I could do quite a lot. So I'm seeing the, the, the young women actually taking over this network and also running, and then I'm just like their advisor. I'm just like one who encourages them because I want the legacy passed on from generation to generation. That's terrific. Betty, we're, we're coming to the end of our time, and I'd like to shift the lens a little bit and talk about leadership and social entrepreneurship and uh, ask you to speak a little bit to the people who may be listening to this who have an aspiration similar to yours, which is to go and to try to be of service in a leadership role, fighting some injustice. And and I I, I note that you are hold the Janetis Sagan Award from Amnesty International, and I wanted to read a quote that she had made. She said, silence in the face of injustice is complicity with the oppressor. And 
I'd like to ask you to share with our listeners where where did you find your courage to stand up to this injustice? It, it must have been a very difficult thing to do because it was really an effort to transform the culture. And I'm sure, actually, uh, my understanding is that some of the uh, risk to you has actually caused you to have to leave Zimbabwe. Tell us about your personal courage uh, and where that comes from. Uh, I think my personal courage comes from the fact that I saw life being lost. Firstly, the life of my mother was a life that was very precious. My mother was supposed to be alive up to the day. She died at age 33, leaving behind uh, seven children with no one to take care of. And the fact that I, did, I, I led the whole family to prosperity actually inspired me to say, I'm not only a leader at family level, I, 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 if I stopped it on myself, what stops me from stopping it on another person? So what has actually happened is that I have taken it as a personal agenda, as also as a personal commitment. Leadership starts with uh, giving yourself. It doesn't start by people calling you for a job only. If you don't first volunteer yourself to say, I'm here, even whatever you can do in a million jobs sometimes comes to naught. But also what I want to say to the people, you get challenged by injustice, but you must also get you know, challenged by justice. You must strive also to see justice. I think a lot of people give up on people who bully us, people who defame us, people who stop us. They don't even look wider to see, to look at people who encourage us, people who want to see the work done, and those are the most vulnerable people who cannot uh, speak for themselves. So I think for me, I can see a little girl who was about to die coming with a smile to say, I'm a doctor, I'm a lawyer, I'm seeing the replication of my leadership going different ways. And what is there except to say it's good to see a new generation changed, a new generation challenging, a new generation standing up. So I'm not challenged by challenges. I am actually challenged by successes. So you, your original motivation comes from some of the tragedy that you had experienced in your own life, but your inspiration comes from seeing the fruits of your work. Do I hear that right? Yes, I now see physically that it, it, it can happen. It didn't only happen with me that I come out of a tragedy. That's terrific. That's it, it's, it's every girl telling a story. So with my book, it starts with me saying never again, and then thousands of girls start saying never again, and then millions. And we don't know how far it's going to spread. Mm -hmm. So uh, <laughs> what I really enjoy about my work, normally when you see a teacher, she's in a small classroom. But when you take the whole world to be your classroom, it, it, it's actually very, very motivating. Uh, as part of inspiring our listeners, I wanted to share with them an excerpt from a poem that you have written. Uh, if you will permit me, I'm just going to read part of it and then get your response to it. The, the, the title of the poem is, This is the job I have always wanted to do. 
And it says, here I am and here is the job, the job I have always wanted to do, to do with all passion and compassion, combat, feeling I am totally there, there on the job I have always wanted to do. No coercion, persuasion, manipulation, no job description, no job specification, specific though to support empowerment of girls. Girls empowered, future women reach potential, potential to hover, conquer, soldier on, struggle on, not for the love of money, but for the love of girls, groomed, empowered girls, fruits of my labor. I found that so um, inspiring, uh, Betty. And, you know, for the social entrepreneurs around the world who are working to fight injustice, tell us something that can really transmit that sense that you have, obviously, of maintaining your passion and your commitment and your grit in the face of so many obstacles and hardships. Really, your story is an inspiration, but uh, what, what, what advice would you give to someone who is, who is feeling that they're not making progress, perhaps, and that uh, it will not, their work will come to nothing? What can you tell, us, uh, tell them at this moment to help them uh, stay the course? I think the fact that they choose a career, they choose an area to lead in, it really tells a story about who they are. So I would actually tell them to remain focused, to remain determined, and also to identify the right people who can encourage them. Many times we find ourselves with negativity more than the many little positive things we are achieving. We don't account for them every day. So I would actually tell other fellows, other entrepreneurs, that once you start on a vision, when, once you start on a goal, make sure that you shoot. Once you start shooting, you will never stop shooting. Once successful, forever successful. That's great. That's great. Betty, tell us the best way to reach you and support your work. I know you're on the web, and can you give us the main website? I believe, let me make sure I have this right, uh, girlchildnetworkworldwide.org. Is that correct? Yes, you are quite right. And then, and then you also have a personal website where people can uh, contact you uh, if they want you to uh, help them as a trainer or a speaker. And uh, let me make sure I have this right because it's – can you help me pr- pronounce this? It's Musvare. Is that – do I have that right? Musvare Betty McConaughey. Yes, Yes, you are quite right. So (laughs) just to help the listeners, that's M-U-Z-V-A-R-E, BettyMcConey.org. And if you type BettyMcConey.org into Google, these websites will come up. So I hope that that, uh, people will find you and support your work. Betty, it's been an enormous pleasure to speak with you today. Thank you so much for your leadership and service in such an important cause. I'm grateful to you and keep up this great work with Ashoka. Thank you for joining us today. Our library of interviews and a range of further resources may be found at archstreetpress.org or prx.org.